Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode of Productizing Decisional AI with special guest, Matthew Pulsifer. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hey, Darren. Hey, it's weird. You can't call me Darren. I'm your dad. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, Dad. No, no. It, it, this is the first time I've interviewed one of my kids on this show, and it's apropos right now because of what's going on in artificial intelligence. Uh, so, Matthew, give us a little bit of your background, uh, where you're coming from, and uh, why we have you on the show today. So I'm a product manager, and I've worked with several uh, companies just modernizing their product line. And in my most recent role, one of the things I've worked on very particularly was integrating decisional AI into their product. And I found that it was a very intriguing, interesting experience, and it showed where a lot of the promises and uh, a lot of the exact tactics that you have to uh, have when doing so. You know, it's really interesting because not a lot of companies have actually productized any kind of AI. They're, they're internal stuff or a chat bot here or, or something like this. So this is a new field, right? Oh, absolutely. And the thing is that it's very common that everyone just kind of assumes AI is chat GPT or just other generative AI systems, right? And in business, there's definitely a fit for those systems and they become more and more sophisticated every day. But what matters the most in AI is context. And the issue with generative AIs is that you have limited context to work with because you are limited to the prompt. Everything beyond that content or that prompt is uh, coming from its general data set. Okay, before, before we get into that, let, let's, let's simplify this a little bit because there's lots of different... AI, AI techniques out there. And you, you kind of talked to me a little bit about three different types of AI. So let's, let's kind of, let's set that uh, ground first. What are the, the main three types of, of AI that uh, we see out there today? Sure. Well, you've got generative, which is where most of the hype is right now. Um, and that's what chat GPT is and other text generators, image generators. These generate text or images or content, and they're built on general data sets. So it's just kind of taking a slice of whatever it was trained on, which is just about everything. Um, for each query that you're sending to it, you need to give it the context per query, and that can be kind of limited, which makes it good for general knowledge questions and difficult, complex individual tasks, but it doesn't make it very good for making focused decisions based on your company. So, okay, so generative AI, generalized, right? Yes. It General knowledge trained on lots and lots of data from lots of different spaces. When you ask it questions, it it's like uh, talking to someone that uh, reads encyclopedias. Right, and, and it can be a little bit unpredictable too, right? Because you don't always get a standard response back. Oh, well, how so? Well, there's never a 100% chance. You can ask it very specific questions and offer it a format, and there's a very good chance it will come back in that format. But you never have a 100% guarantee because there's always a little bit of randomness to it. Otherwise, it would always 
produce the same answers for every single question. Uh, that, so that's why if I ask it the same thing twice, I don't get the same response. I Correct. get a little bit different response each time. Right. Okay. All right. So there's no absoluteness uh, with generative AI. Very good. I, very good tool. I, I play around with ChatGPT all the time. I use it for my podcast um, to find out information. It, it's good at summarizing information for me and putting it in, in different formats that I need. But that lack of predictable deterministic response makes it very hard to automate processes using it. Okay. Is this where the next step is, which is decisional AI? Or... Yeah. Okay. So explain decisional AI then. So the difference between generative and decisional AI, generative AI is based on general knowledge and it generates text or content based on that general knowledge. With decisional AI, it is a lot simpler in its scope, but it's a lot more focused in its context. So decisional AI chooses the best option given a set of data based on models generated from your previous data and trained using your own company's data. So this is this helps me focus and, and target decisions based off of previous decisions I have made in my um, in in my company or in my industry, right? If I'm sharing models and in industry models, exactly. uh, then that would be the case. And you can take those models and train them according to your employees or department's behavior. Okay, and decisional AI used primarily for making decisions. Right? Decisional AI. <laughs> It makes decisions, right? And those decisions could be used for val validation and verification of uploads from a user. It could be used to present the best product to a customer based on their um, activities on your site and other information you know about them. Um, and it's based on a lot of context from your company's uh, data. So it's the opposite of generative AI in that generative AI knows a lot about everything and it's never really deterministic. But decisional AI knows a lot about your specific case, and it will return a deterministic result. Okay, you. and I want that determinism um, when I'm dealing with business process and, and things like that. So I would use decisional AI to decide whether a product is good, good enough to ship, or whether a customer that I have is worth uh, extending a line of credit to, or um, a vendor is giving me the best price. In, in time. So I can use decisional AI for business process and business process automation. That's what I'm hearing. Is that right? Correct. It's very good for automation because it picks between options A, B, C, or D. Okay. All right. All right. So the last one here and where we want to get to, right? Eventually predictive AI. I want it to tell me where the stock market's going, why SVB bank actually failed and I would have gotten my money out before it failed. <laughs> this is predictive AI, right? This is where I really want to get to. Right. So predictive AI is almost a cross point between the two, but it's a lot more similar to decisional AI. So it's based on the custom models and data sets that you have, but it generates a predicted value based on those other numbers and data points that you have. And that predicted value is based on the previous performance of that result. You've worked in decisional AI, not predictive AI, decisional right. AI. Uh, so I don't I just go grab this model and it solves all my problems for decision making? I mean, it can. 
it can't. All right, so I just grab it. It's that easy, right? I just, <laughs> I just go to Walmart, buy my decisional AI uh, for industrial, for my manufacturing, buy my decisional AI, plug it in, and I'm ready to go. Is that how it works? I mean, if you're dealing with a model that is working with COTS software and it's using uh, established pre-trained things, it can be that simple. But in practice, oh, really? uh, yeah, I mean, actually, there are marketplaces of models that you can import that takes standardized data that are pre-trained to like a certain standard, right? So you can start using those immediately and then train it further using your user's data. Okay, so I don't have to start from scratch. Not always. And, no. and it's not like I'm going and just buying something that plugs in directly. There's a little bit of work involved. There's some integration work. Um, there are some SaaS vendors out there that offer decisional AI as kind of a service. And you can set up your container and make those API calls and you're just feeding your data into it and getting those decisions back, then sending corrections if needed. And we'll kind of get into, if you were to start from scratch, what that would look like. All right. So uh, let's start. How do I get started? How do I decide whether I can use decisional AI or not? Walk me down the process. Sure. Well, the first thing that you need to do is identify the problem that you want to solve. And once you've done that, you can determine whether it's a good fit for AI. Um, it's a good fit for AI if it's not too large. Otherwise, you're going to spend months and months trying to accommodate a very complex set of data with a not necessarily accurate model. You want to pare it down to the point where it is something that's achievable within about six months if you want to be successful right now. And part of that, too, is picking something that's operationally relevant. If you're deciding to solve a problem that doesn't really matter to your operations or your business users, um, you're doing it to say that you're using AI and that's all you're going to achieve. You need to solve a real problem that helps the business. So you need to scope your problem. And instead of saying, I want it to do a whole bunch of things, scope it to, I want it to help make decisions on this specific thing. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. You want to find something that is, has reasonable bounds so that you can limit your options because you're trying to have a decisional AI for a limited set of options, right? Let's say five options at most. It could be more, it could be less, but you don't want to make it too difficult on yourself because that needs to be an answer to the query, whatever that decisional option is. And we'll get into that in a minute when we talk about influencers and decision options. Um, Another thing that makes problems a good fit for AI is if it's a repeated process. Is this something that your business users are doing every day? Is it busy work? Well, I mean, so, so whoa, whoa. But decisions have to be made here. So this is not just like an RPA, a robotic process automation, where I'm just, oh, they they go and do this, then they do this, then they do this. There's right decisions involved in this automation as well, right? It's not, it's well, there are a lot. There are a lot of things that happen in businesses that are repeated processes, but still require subjective human review. Gotcha. Um, and, and the example I want to use, the other thing is that it's data-driven, but we can kind of talk about this example and how it applies to all these things. Let's talk about a financial institution that needs to validate driver's licenses using extracted data. So I have a driver's license and I can run it through OCR and I can take those uh, data points from it, right? Um, I need to determine whether these data points are logically consistent and each state has slightly different rules. 
And what I want is, is this good? Is this definitely bad? Or does it probably need human review? This way I can speed up and clear out the human queue of work um, and still have a amount of risk management involved. All right, so this, this helps with uh, ma making decisions, which means I can take the human out of, out of the loop where a human's looking at a driver's license saying, yes, that looks good against this picture of a California driver's license compared to a Georgia driver's license. I know what they're supposed to look like. I can check it. That can happen automatically, but then you can have one that says it needs to be thrown out. And then another one that says it needs human review. Do you right. eventually see, um, can the decisional models get better so that I can throw out the human review? Absolutely. And that's the intent of, uh, if you've built the product correctly, what you've built is an interface that that streamlines the manual process that they're already doing. Because a lot of times people will establish manual processes for these things if there's no system to do it for them. They could be doing it in an Excel sheet. They could be following their own rules on it. So what you want to do is figure out what those rules are. And then you want to come up with data points around those rules and then use those data points to train the AI. Then you feed it back into an interface that lets them do the work. And as they're doing the work, you can do a couple things. You can give them a predetermination that upon human review, you can validate yes or no on. So you're kind of pre-filling stuff for them, which helps productivity. Or you can skip the queue entirely because you're confident that it's good, which speeds up the user experience and increases productivity. Or you can um, just say needs review. I, the AI doesn't know there is enough confidence score. And then when the human reviews it, they will submit their response. And that response goes back to the model and trains the model continuously. So you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of work that Ancestry.com was doing with indexing handwritten documents from the 16, 1700s, um, census documents and birth certificate and, and birth records in counties. They had legions of people that would go on and say, I think this is what it is. And I noticed over the years, because we did indexing, it was, it was kind of fun, right, to look at these old documents. Yeah. And I noticed something really cool as the years went on and doing it, the decision, it, it would say, we think it's this, is that yes or no? And I go, yes. Right. Guess what? Indexing, you don't need as many people anymore because the AI has gotten really smart, right? So this uh, reinforced learning is part of, it needs to be part of your product offering that you're working in, in your offering, it sounds like. Yeah, and to make the most effective product that uses this kind of machine learning backend, you're going to build something that, even if you didn't have the machine learning backend built in, would still speed up the process that your users are currently going through by streamlining it and keeping them focused on what matters. Oh, I like what you said there about keeping them focused on what matters because you don't want the AI to get in the way. Right. Right. So it's supposed to just be like an aid to help them do their job more effectively and, and, and better. You'd want to interview and get a better understanding of what the users are doing now in their current process. Okay. And the best thing to do is just sit and watch them. 
after you've read the documentation that drives your process. So sometimes they have documentation, sometimes they don't. But sit and watch them and take notes of what they're doing. Are there things they're looking at? So going back to the driver's license, um, are they looking at the issue date in relation to the expiration date? Are they looking at certain other indicators of the driver's license? Maybe if, if it's Georgia and it has a gold border, it's invalid or something along those lines. You just need to figure out which inferences they're getting from the data on the driver's license. And this is very important. And um, we'll talk a little bit about how the inferences are more important than the raw data. And if you can write code to pull those out before sending them to the model, you're going to get much more accurate results based on trying to replicate the human behavior. So if you can identify areas where you want to do the inference. So it's a, that, that interview, when you, when you talked about the interview, it reminded me of my first job out of college. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. I don't know. So I, uh, my first company I worked with was ISG Technologies, medical imaging. My job was to help come up with the user interface for a, radio, uh, a digital radiography station. Now, this was very, very cool stuff. Sorry. This was very, very cool stuff because back then people put films on light boards. So the first thing they had me do was go and watch radiologists in these light board reading rooms for three days. And I just took notes on what they did, how they worked. And um, it was fascinating because I learned um, from the way that they interacted with the film, what we could do in, in our product to make it. So it was used to how they worked. And, and I saw the inefficiencies in what they did and the tricks they used to get around things. Sounds like we want to use the same technique when we're developing AI internal products and also external, it sounds like. Right, because usually I assume that when you did this, you had some kind of a guide that they were trained on that you also read before? No, okay. no. I sat there with seasoned, like guys that have been reading film for 20 years. And I sat there with um, uh, new doctors, right, that have been um, that were still, uh, residents. They are six months into this. I see. Uh, so it was fascinating watching what they did and the how they worked. between the two, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's one of the things you'll find is seasoned pros will come up with shortcuts. And those shortcuts are oftentimes inferences that may not be documented or they may not have been trained in school, but these guys have seen enough records that they know that if this is the case on a record, then we can skip this other stuff because we know that this is a problem as an example. So how do you, how do you do, I mean, you literally just sit there and watch people. Take a recorded session, um, have them talk through what they're doing and why, or you could do a silent interview. It really just depends on which stakeholder you're working with. And if they're nervous, have them talk through it. Otherwise, they won't feel like you're just watching them and judging their performance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> Just make no, it very clear that you're just trying to understand what they do and why. I think that's why they put someone so junior, I mean, fresh out of college, sitting in a dark room. They were like, oh, he's just a peon over there. He, he's not, you know. <laughs> um, you're not about, it's, this is a performance review. We're it's just not a, trying yeah. to understand what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, because that's going to be a fear of a lot of people. Um, have you had to deal with any fear of people saying, well, if... If they're coming in here to help automate the process with an AI, is that replacing my job? I mean, do people feel that way? 
I think to a degree they do, but it's all about establishing the right context because what you're really trying to do is help them work on their work more effectively and faster, right? So another thing I've seen is if you aren't the kind of person that interacts with the stakeholders the best, have the UI designer do the study. They, they have a lot of experience in doing that. Uh, so getting a good UI designer. So this is what I'm hearing. A, a UI designer or a product manager that's that's good at, at taking copious notes. And so you have these stakeholders that you're working with. Um, have you run into any problems where where people are circumventing the AI that you put into place? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so how do you deal with that? Well, to a degree, you do have to be able to trust the stakeholder. And you need to have overrides where needed because ultimately that department can make their own decisions. And the AI is meant to help them, not interfere with them. But the other thing that I've found that's helpful is if they're trying to, let's say that they wanted to mark something no, but we don't want to train the AI to reject those in the future because it was a weird exception. It doesn't really fit in the standard rules. I ask them the reason they're marking it no in your interface. And then under behind the scenes, choose not to train the AI with it. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So, so when they mark something, no, I ask them why. Because it could be that the rules are wrong. Right. Or it could be this is an exception that only happens once every million. Or, once or there's some circumstance where it's not, they need to, let's say it's driver's license validation. And independent of the image that was sent in, um, we found out this driver's license is bogus. They still need a way to do their work. But if you don't give them a way to do their work that fits in the confines of the system, they will find ways to just make it happen. And you don't want that to harm the model. So if you were to ask them, well, why are you doing this? You don't even need to factor that into the model. I mean, you could include that as a data point, but you could also just use it as a data point as to whether you send it or not. Interesting. And I, I actually, I actually like that. I, sometimes we don't, even, we don't think of that, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, wh what about uh, stakeholders gaming the the AI? Um, unfortunately, I do think that there is a little bit of that going on, um, or it can happen, definitely. What you can do to prevent that is you want to design the interface to make it very clear when it's a user that reviewed a specific data point or an AI that reviewed the specific data point and make it clear to them. It's just, it's there to help you. It's there to predict it. And if it's not dead on, you can correct it. Now gaming it, um, you just have to make sure that your model is aligned with what the user is doing. Um, no, no. Okay. No, that makes sense. I, I, I just thought because AIs are susceptible to, uh, to human interaction, right? Right. You could get a group of people to help desk, right? That are, or, or. They're tired of the AI workers. flagging stuff. So they say no. So they okay. say no all the time, which they, they can skip over. So somehow you've got to be able to capture those sorts of things uh, in, in the back end, it sounds like. And a lot is just look at the reasons and try and think of them ahead of time and make sure your interface accommodates for that and also allows them to feel heard if they need to bypass it. Um, but again, going back to the reason dropdown, if there's a reason dropdown there, 
we're accommodating the fact that we know that they're going to need to bypass this sometimes, especially if the AI wasn't confident, right? Because if the AI wasn't confident, it's an edge case. And eventually what ends up happening is as the model gets better, your team is really only going to work on edge cases and stuff that is not as clear. So their work will get harder, but they'll be doing less of it, which is exactly where humans are useful. Well, you sound like my interview with ChatGPT. Humans <laughs> will be useful for... I, I'm just giving you a hard time, Matthew. Um, so uh, it's it's interesting because the way I kind of see this going then is the AIs will take care of all the easy stuff. Ultimately, if you've... If you've got a well-trained model, yes. Gotcha. And I also think that humans are trained as well how to leverage the AI better. As, as they continually go through it, they're going to learn how the AI is going to be predictive, and they're going to know the areas uh, to only focus on those areas moving forward. It's in our, it's in our nature to, to learn. So it's, it's an interesting combination where we're learning together, the AI and the stakeholder are learning how to do this together. That's that's actually fascinating. And you want to build an interface that, you know, the AI is a teammate. It's helping you. And it needs to be collaborative. The kinds of things that you would put into a collaborative interface where multiple people need to work on a single file are the things that you would want to integrate into an AI uh, interface as well, because the AI should appear as another team member to the user. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it as this cold-hearted computer algorithm, but I, I like what you're saying there. If I include it into the team, it's part of my team, um, then I can interact with it more naturally and it can learn better uh, from that natural interaction. Just in terms of how it appears in the tool, of course. Um, you can't have ChatGPT participate in Slack channels or anything along those lines. But Not yet. Just give it some no. time. Well, if you could stack decisional generative, I mean, you could just call the right a APIs. Um, so, so where do you see this moving forward, Matthew? I mean, uh, do you see this as a blossoming industry for product managers? They got to learn how to how to leverage AI into their products, or is this a special niche? I what do what do you see? I think it's going to become essential um, for any kind of job where you're dealing with stakeholders that do human data processing of any kind. And, and why just human data processing? Just because so much variability? Well, if, if right now, we've already kind of had the digital revolution to a degree, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you already have it in data and you can do hard line logic to solve the problem, you've probably already solved it or should solve it using just hard line logic. But where decisional AIs are the most useful are cases where you need to have it normally right now, a human review something manually because it doesn't quite add up. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the, the key point there. All right. Great. Matthew, any, any last words for my audience today? Well, I really appreciate you having me on the show and I am looking for my next opportunity to transform a business using AI. So. All right. So there you go. There's his, there's his pitch. <laughs> go hire this kid. Please, I don't want him moving back in with me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, 
Give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.